For so many people, Sex in the City has become a model for the ideal New York City experience. And as much as I love a handbag and Cosmos with my friends, here we're pulling back the curtain. Forget the glamour shots and cue these real stories of artists navigating the concrete jungle, conquering Broadway, and finding their spotlight. This isn't just a podcast, it's your front row seat to a community of individuals sharing how they're living their authentic truth. This is the Bradshaw Effect, where you're not just a listener, you're the main character of your own story. So, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the pod to talk. I am so sorry that it's taken us so long to connect, but I'm happy that we're finally doing it now. Um, so why don't you worth, give... Worth the wait. <laughs> oh, so worth the wait. I'm so excited. Um, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of your story, a little bit about you, um, and then we'll kind of go into all the the goodies that, that circle you. Sure. Um, so uh, my name is Edward Miskey. Um, I'm originally from central Pennsylvania. I've been in New York for 18 years. I'm a recovering musical theater uh, person. I was lucky enough to perform all over the country for years and years and years and years. And then I just got, you know, burnt out and a number of other things that we can get into. Because um, again, I don't care. We're, we're naming names. We're, <laughs> we're talking the shit. And I kind of have transitioned to being a writer and a, a, I'm gearing more towards like other media and TV. Mm-hmm. So um, my book, Cancer, Musical Theater and Other Chronic Illnesses, was published last year um, for my 10-year cancer survivorship anniversary. Um, it is a musical theater fantasy nonfiction fever dream of being a patient and a survivor. Because a lot of times you don't hear about the afterthought of you're cancer free and really that's when the chaos starts like everything else is very structured because you have a medical team like kind of holding your hand and guiding you through and you're a rag doll Mm -hmm. and then you get out and you're like fuck i have to figure out my life again um which is why i wrote the book so so that's a whole thing um it's we're moving towards it being adapted for tv and uh, uh, my podcast that I co-host with Sarah Seeds is called I Want to Be a Rich Bitch, and that is entering season two shortly. I'm sure by the time this this comes out, maybe we will have started, but I don't know <laughs> uh, what the timeline for that is. So so yeah, that's my deal. I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I work in entertainment, I guess, and I'm a corporate baddie by day and a creative uh, a creative genius by night. <laughs> corporate baddie. I love that. Um, yeah. Well, so I mean, funny. it's it's. It's a disman- It's a thing that I had to dismantle a- a- with myself. When I was 20 years old, I was working in corporate and mm-hmm. making more money than anyone in my family for 2007 standards. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I was laid off because of the financial crash because I was working in finance. Yeah. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, I don't I don't want to be in corporate. I want to be a creative person and be an actor. And and so I need to do all the things that actors do to be an actor, which was like bartending waiting tables, doing merch at Broadway shows and, you know, other kind of mindless jobs that just pay your bills. And it it has been years of dismantling that mindset of like, if I'm not waiting tables or bartending or doing something that allows me to work at night, then I'm not a real creative. And Mm -hmm what's really funny is that I'm creating more things now than I ever have. And part of that is because I have a corporate job that pays me real adult money, like more money I've ever made in my whole life. And I'm, and that affords me the option to create things on my own. 
um, because no one makes it on their own. That's such a fantasy and a fallacy that we allow people to believe. You need a team. You have to pay for it. A lot of times it's pay for play, even though it's called something else, you know, like you have to have money. It's why the people who are successful, you find out their parents were rich or their parents were famous or they had, they, you know, I think I talk about Jessica Vosk all the time. She used to work on Wall Street and now she's like, you know, a Broadway baddie. So like this idea of like, I have to wait tables and someone will discover me. No one's coming. You need to like make the money and do it yourself. Like, you know. It's also this thing too, where I have been saying that exact same thing where it's like, you don't have to be living this struggling lifestyle. Um, And I say struggling in terms of feeling like your quote, quote, survival job has to be something that you don't enjoy joy or outside of the industry it's it's not like we're it's not like we're incapable of doing more than one thing like artists Mm -hmm. and creative people are notorious for being able to multitask and and do the hustle as we call it um and so why can't that also be having a nine-to-five job or another career you know that pays the bills and then have that fund what you actually want to do and eventually that that uh, proportion will switch over to you being a creative and, a, and an actor or whatever be the thing is um, full, full time. You know, yeah. if you have the money, like, do you think Jessica Vosk just like quit her job and was broke all the time and like was swinging from audition to audition? Like, no, she was doing her nine to five. She was taking her big fat Wall Street paycheck and she was taking classes and paying to be around these people and putting herself into situations that allowed her to kind of climb up that social ladder within Mm -hmm. the industry to get her to where she is you know and that costs money that's like you know that's where the money should be going (laughs) see and that's something too whenever it comes down to I I feel like so many people where you say well I have to I have to cater I have to serve I have to it's like you have the opportunity to find (laughs) exactly you don't you can go off and like like in um you can go off and do something similarly in in the theater industry where you're not performing. You can go off and you can be a dresser. You can go off and you can, if you have that skill set, you can go and start a fucking podcast. You can go and write a book. Like there are all these things that like I feel like 2024 that I want to like let people know. And this is from a previous episode. So if you listen to a previous episode with Patrick O'Neill listeners, you'll get this reference. But having the audacity to claim what we want this year. Um, because you know, we're the ones getting in our own way most of the time. So it's important to like shove that shit behind you and do it. Yeah. Well, and, and two things, first of all, my production company is called audacity media. So that's, that's one thing. I love that. (laughs) Um, because it's so true. And the other part of it is also, you know, like I didn't write this book bartending. I had a desk job that I sat at a desk for eight hours a day. And for the six hours of that day that I was not really doing anything or not needed, Mm -hmm. I wrote a book and it took me a year and it was because I had a desk job. And I I joke all the time that I was paid to write the book because that job was paying me to sit at that desk. And while I was at that desk, I utilized my free time to write this book, Um, you know, and it's just... It you know and and I was working in marketing like a year ago, um, which is a train wreck and a totally different story. That <laughs> while I was at home, it afforded me the opportunity to start a podcast and really kind of explore that 
you know, version of what I wanted to do. And so it's, it's then taking all the skill sets. And I think this is really hard for creative people too. It's certainly hard for me. It's been years of me trying to figure this out mm-hmm. of taking all of your skill sets and throwing them into a mixing bowl and kind of like whisking them around to figure out what's going to come out on the other side. Yep. Because I, I don't necessarily have like one thing that people look at me and they're like, Oh, that's Edward Miskey. He's, he's the, the whatever guy. Um, you know, whereas like my dad, he's a singer songwriter. Like you can look at him and be like, oh, he's a musician and people hire him for that. Or like my friend Catherine, oh, she's a she's theater TikTok, people hire her for social media. Um, you know, so it it's like I don't necessarily have that one thing. Yeah. And to me, that has always felt like I'm like the the defective puzzle piece that doesn't fit. But really what that is is just I'm still like whisking in the bowl, trying to figure out what's gonna come out on the other side. You just have to do it with focus and intention. And I think to your point of like not having to live this like starving artist lifestyle kind of thing where you just have a more streamlined focus, you know, like, like with this book, like obviously TV was always the goal for the book. Mm-hmm. I wrote it in like this, this mind's eye of uh, Rob Marshall who directed Chicago, the movie musical and all of these other brilliant movie musicals that kind of have this fantasy to reality kind of thing. So that was kind of the mind's eye that I wrote the book in. And I always knew that I wanted to move it towards something else. So when it was published, I was like, I have to stop auditioning, stop doing everything else and just focus on this because this will give me the other mediums that I want to do. And it's just kind of like, having the ability because i know we all have the tendency to like get shiny object syndrome where we're like oh my god but this show's happening but this show's happening and i want to audition for this and i want to audition for this you have to shut it off and stop and just be like this is the one thing that i want to do and if if i am approached or distracted by something that does not lead to that then i'm not doing it and and saying no to stuff like that is hard very hard and i feel like too we're conditioned to say yes because it's of course uh, if, we are. if I don't if I don't say scarcity. yes to this, I'm gonna miss it. I'm gonna miss out on yeah, this it's opportunity. scarcity. Like, oh, this is this is my last opportunity that's ever gonna come my way. So I have to take it because who knows if this is the last time that I'll ever be on stage. Please. And and I say I say that kind of indignantly because that's how I was in my twenties. Also, mm-hmm. I was I only turned I think I only ever turned two jobs down ever. Um, and one was like a bus and truck children's tour of Wizard of Oz. And I was like, no, that's, I don't need to do that. <laughs> um, and I can't, what was, there was an, I don't remember. Uh, there's at least two, but I, those are the only two that I really can remember of being like, no, thank you. That's, that's not for me. Yeah. Because, and everything else I said yes to. And yes, it was impressive that I was all over the country all the time. And I always had a job and I was always working. But what was the end game? Like, there wasn't one. The end game was just to have a job and to be like, look, I'm doing a show. <laughs> but yeah. had I been a little bit more intentional, um, you know, when I was younger, skinnier, hotter, it's, you know, in whatever, do the audition and hope that you book something. And I think that that's a lot of what mindset people are in especially newbies especially uh there's a sweet spot in the middle where i think maybe you're not in that mindset but newbies and people who've been around for a while um i think get into that whole like oh god just give me a job well and it's also a thing too We're where i feel like a cassie and chorus line crap <laughs> <laughs> give me a chance to come through <laughs> It's also just that thing, listeners, you'll remember this because I talk about this, I feel like in every single episode, it's 
being able to hone in on your personal why statement and why you feel like you're put on, whether it be this earth, this industry, whatever it is that fuels you and makes you happy. The moment that you can identify that, it goes to the point that we've been saying, everything else kind of aligns in this little path ahead of you to where you don't get distracted by the noise on the side. You're not listening to people's feedback that really doesn't matter anything to what you know that you want to do. The jobs that come along, it's easier to pass up on them because you know it's not in alignment of where you want to be, or you're looking at things just overall more strategically. And I think that that's just so important to do. Well, there's, and to, to tie into that, there's also this whole like want idea. Like, what do you want? Not what do you think other people want you to do? Not what do you think your family wants from you? What do you want? And I think a lot of what I, what I did in my twenties when I was traveling and performing and, and starring in musicals everywhere was that that was what I thought other people wanted to see from me. Mm. And really what I wanted was to create my own thing and not have to rely on someone else to give me a job and a paycheck. Yeah, And I only really started doing that, I don't know, maybe like eight or nine years in. Um, and I had some success to it, which of course got derailed because of shutdown and everything just got really weird and whatever. But like, I've always wanted to create my own things. I've always wanted to be my own boss and, and call the shots on where my career was going. And mm -hmm. I enjoyed going to auditions because of the social component of it, like seeing people you know all the time and like, that's how I've made all of my close friends. And so I wouldn't trade it. But I think recognizing the what do you want thing, and it's like, no, 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 but what do you want? And it's not like, oh, I want to be on Broadway. Like, okay, if that's it, like, then why? See, and this because goes back it, to having the audacity, because I feel like yeah. we had this conversation in a previous podcast episode where it was like, it's so easy for us when we're like eight or seven, whatever, you were younger, we say these things that we want. I want to be on Broadway. I want to write the next great American musical. Well, that's great. But what happens is whenever we turn, you know, um, in our 20s or whatever, we mature, we get to the city, we're embarrassed to say those things. And it's like, why? Because if that's what we want, that's what we want. You have to claim these things because whenever you claim them and speak them into existence, that's going to help you understand is if this is what I want, is this decision I'm going to make get me closer to that thing that I know that I want? Or I kind of coming wanna, in to I help. I kind of want to. Sorry, I, I kind of want to comment on the the embarrassed to say that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that stems from a couple different things. First of all, I mean, I think it really as anti-religious as I am. Like, I I really think it stems from religion, which teaches you to be small and to be meek mm. and to be quote unquote humble and like shrink yourself for the betterment of everyone else, which I do not believe in. Um, but I think the other part of it too, and maybe this kind of stems similarly, is that you have grown up your whole life being told that that's not a real job. That's not a real career. Like, when are you going to get a real job? Oh, you have to have a plan B. You have to have a fallback plan. And I also don't believe in the fallback plan, plan B thing. I think that they there's room for them to have a symbiotic relationship, like we were talking about earlier, where I work in corporate and I also do creative stuff when I get home. And those things yeah. help each other out. It's not an either or, it's an and. And um, like the whole embarrassed to say it thing, it's, it's, it's stemmed from, oh, that's not a real career and you're annoying. And it's like, oh, actors, like, and yes, actors are annoying, guilty, like, I get it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, you know, there, there's definitely um, a, a, like a hurdle that you have to get over to be able to say, 
this is who I am. This is what I want. This is why I want it. And this is yeah. how I'm going to do it. Very true. It's like, you know, not to tie Taylor Swift into literally everything, but in Mastermind, she says, if you if you don't plan, then you plan to fail. And like the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, shit, because it's true. Like, I didn't have a plan in my 20s. And so, of course, I didn't get to where I wanted to go because there was no focus. There was no intention. It was just like, I'm just going to audition and get a job and hope for the best. And if it would have been more like, this is the kind of role I want. This is the show on Broadway that's doing it. I'm going to do everything I can to learn that track and go for it and get it because that happens all the time. And it's really funny how this conversation is aligning so well with previous episodes because we were talking a few episodes ago also about how we, I hate New Year's resolutions because New Year's resolutions, what we do is we say these big ideas and then we don't give ourselves a map or a framework to actually achieve those things and make it obtainable. We just say, we're going to do this by the end of the year. And then when we get to the year, end of the year, we feel like a fucking failure because of course we didn't achieve them because we didn't help ourselves out to like create somewhat of a framework to help it actually happen. And so it's, it's, I just, I love how this is aligning because it's the same thing with what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and also too, I have found really helpful and this is, this is a newer concept for me. Um, but it has been like the, the difference that it has made has been astronomical and it, it's not necessarily a new year's resolution kind of thing, but it's the planning thing. Mm -hmm. Plan for, plan for the quarter. Yes. Plan quarterly planning is so great plan for the quarter and like this is probably so elementary to most people that are hearing it but again like i'm on a learning curve here um <laughs> i'm like right at the peak of mount stupid right now um which is a concept that is absolutely fascinating um but like it, it really is planning for the quarter like january february march what is the plan okay when you get to the end of march like it's the end of january so my quarter is almost completely full or planned and so i give myself like 30 days to mm -hmm. plan for the quarter and so then at the end of march like by the time the beginning of march happens i have like the second quarter kind of planned yeah um you know so i give myself about 30 days to actually like implement and do without being distracted by planning for the future but like doing that is so much easier than like looking at the whole year and being like okay it's january the 13th and by december 31st this is going to happen and I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that or like having that in mind, but planning quarterly breaks it down into smaller, like less intimidating pieces. And it has been astronomically helpful. It's how I stopped drinking most of the time. You know, like I, I break it every now and then, but it's like, I'm going to do a yeah. hundred day, hundred days of not drinking. And like yeah. that to me is so much easier than being like, I'm never drinking again. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, great. But you have, it, it's, you have to create steps to make these huge ideas, like you're saying, tangible. Yeah. And breaking it yeah. down in quarters, I have found also very, very helpful. Yeah. And breaking breaking down big dreams is hard because there is no right path. There is no right answer. You know, people make it from, like, quote unquote, make it from a multitude of different mm -hmm. paths. You know, like, the person that I want to be the most like now is Seth MacFarlane. Okay, well, how did he do that? Well, he started by doing little bit roles here and there on television, but then ended up breaking away from that and creating his own thing. And that's what got him going. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that is the step that I'm at now where I've broken away now for the past year or so from auditioning and begging for jobs and creating jobs for myself. And that's really what this year is about. And what the my first quarter is about setting up, second quarter is about implementing, third quarter is about like making it happen. And then fourth quarter is hopefully 
you know, I don't know yet. We'll see. <laughs> Fourth <laughs> quarter is going to be based on two and three. <laughs> I would love to backtrack a little bit and talk about your journey to New York and, and <laughs> what that was like. Um, because, you know, one of the main reasons I created this podcast, aside from getting to, you know, create a community of awesome people is I feel like I wanted to create something that I didn't have whenever I was making the move, which was a collection of stories of artists and creatives and how they got here because no one's path is the same. And I think it's important to like emphasize that to people that you, you know, you make it, I'm putting make it in quotes because I think, I think success is a very stupid metric that we all kind of have in our brains because everybody's version of success is so different and comparing that is just impossible and not right <laughs> to me. Yeah. Um, and so being able to have a place where you can see that everybody is on their own metric of success and making it and whatever you want to call it. So I would love to hear about your journey to New York. Sure. And I, I will comment on that in a second, but I do want to point something out about this is like the metric of success, you know, especially with the color purple going around, we're seeing Taraji mm -hmm. talk a lot about her quote unquote success. And like, she's in the public eye, she's on red carpets, she's doing big projects and she's broke because these people are not paying her. Yeah. So like, is that success? Is that the success we want? Like maybe because she has the visibility to kind of blow the lid off of it and have that conversation and use her platform to fix it. But like, she's 40, 40 something years old. Like, I actually don't know how, how old she is. She might be 60. She looks amazing. I don't know. Um, But like having that level of success, like, I don't want that. I don't want to be 50 whatever and broke even though i'm in a ton of projects like that sucks and that has to feel yeah. like shit for her um i mean one of the most recognizable actresses in hollywood truly know, and just... like is not being paid like what <laughs> yeah so you know i i think like we all need to kind of reel it in with what we think success is because as you get older as an elder millennial here um, as you get older, what your idea of success is changes, what your idea of the dream, quote unquote, changes, you know, the dream that I had when I was like in my early 20s is vastly different from what I have now. And I think we also need to not shame ourselves for wanting to move away from that and recognize that the dream changes and that's okay. I remember I used to, I have always had older friends. And when I was in my early 20s auditioning in the city and I was still new here, I would see these people who were older and they'd back away or they'd go get married and have kids and they'd move out to the suburbs. And I'd, I would be so indignant about it. I'd be like, ugh, they're quitters. Like, they're of course, they're never going to make it because they're quitting and I will be here forever. And that's how I'm going to make it because I'm going to be the one that sticks around and have longevity. And like, I hit my mid 30s and I was like, hmm. You know, I'm starting to understand why those people did that. Yeah. Because <laughs> none of these bitches are paying shit. And so you have to figure out a way to make money, which again ties back into the whole like being a corporate baddie during the day. Anyway, all of that to say, baby Edward, uh, <laughs> you know, this is not anything groundbreaking or shocking. This is very much like got on a Greyhound bus, didn't give a fuck about the red shoes kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, grew up in the middle of nowhere, which we now call Trump country. And uh, before that, it was Amish country. And uh... <laughs> like the stages. <laughs> right, right. The Amish are still there, but yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I was a creator, creative kid in, in school and in high school. I was performing and singing and doing theater stuff since the time I was five years old. It's all I knew. 
um i wanted to be a pop star like a, a friend of mine just recently sent me um <laughs> an old an old dropbox uh file that he found on a hard drive of this photo shoot that he and i did together when i was 16 i just turned 16 we did this photo shoot in my dad's garage and uh you know it, it was very much like i wanted to be elton john and billy joe from green day and alicia keys and like you know now i can contextualize like really what i wanted was to be lady gaga but this was pre-lady gaga so <laughs> i didn't know how to didn't know how to articulate that um you know and i was like i recorded an album with my dad and i was i taught myself piano and like i was doing all the things and that's why i moved to new york because i wanted mm -hmm. to do the underground music scene and whatnot and theater was always part of that conversation um, but I would go down to the clubs in the village and in the Lower East Side and, you know, wherever and try to get my stuff played and DJs were terrible and I didn't know how to do it. And of course, MySpace was part of the conversation and like trying to find DJs and, and influencers before we knew what they were, that they were influencers back then on MySpace to try and get them to play your music and your stuff. Yeah. And I should actually try and see if I can find my old MySpace and see what travesty that was. But um, <laughs> that's a podcast episode for yours right there. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> um, but like that, that was kind of the beginning, you know, like me getting all dressed up like a big old, you know, God, some of the things I wore back then, Jesus. <laughs> um, <laughs> and going down to the clubs and the bars and, and trying to get someone to play it. Mm -hmm. And it happened a couple times, but it was a lot of drugs and it was a lot of rude people. And what made me walk away from it hard was that auditioning was more honest, in my opinion. Um, you know, I could go down to a club and try and get up to a DJ booth and hand them a drive or a CD or something and be like, hey, can you play this? And they could, you know, call me names and push me away and, and offer me drugs or whatever. And like... Mm -hmm. That was one thing, but I could sign up, show up, get a slot, get in front of the right people, sing, and maybe have an opportunity to book a job. And it was just so much better structured for me. And it was, it's, I think the structure I needed to kind of understand entertainment and how I wanted to fit into it. Yeah. Um, but during that period of time, I did get to re meet Rachel Platten before she was Rachel Platten. Oh um, it's one of my favorite realizations um we were doing a show uh, an industry showcase at club iguana on 54th street i believe and uh that's where i met her and she was just this cute little blonde named rachel that's all i knew rachel <laughs> and her mom and we became friends and like we we stayed in touch for that summer and then she moved to la she used to i used to work in a hair salon and she came to the salon with her mom and i got her like a free haircut and with my Aww. friend jeremy and all this other stuff and she was very very cool and then I never saw her again because I knew she was moving to LA. This was pre iPhone. So like, you know, yeah. If I lost my razor, I lost her cell phone. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is the razor cell phone, flip phone for those who are listening who don't remember. Um my first but, phone was a clear back razor. Oh, those were so iconic. I love them. I had the silver one all the time and it fell out of my pocket in taxis and on the train constantly. I miss flip phones. If it wasn't oh. for having to look up everything that I need, like maps and stuff like that, I would probably still have a flip phone of some sort. Truly, they were iconic. But then years and years later, I was doing a show in, in Louisville and I was at the Planet Fitness. I was working out and the song came on. And I was like, this song is a banger. And I was like, who is this? And I looked up at the TV and it was Rachel with Fight Song. And I was like, who? And I immediately messaged her on Facebook, and I don't think she ever saw it, but I was like, Rachel, oh my God. And I took a picture of it and I sent it to her, and I was just like, it was such a cool moment. Such a cool I moment. I love that. Wait, so you but, were in Louisville. I'm from Kentucky. 
Oh, really? Where? Lexington. Oh, very, my my cousin lives there. Um, it's my very. I loved Louisville. I was there for six months, and it was just the absolute best. I had such a great time. That weapons museum was insane. Like, <laughs> yeah. I did the whole bourbon tour thing. I went to the Kentucky Derby. I did the food cart festival thing that they do down by the river. Oh, yeah. Um, I went to the baseball museum. I walked all over the Highlands. And, like, it, like, the food there is unparalleled. It was just such a great place. I loved Louisville. So, your book. I would love to talk about that because um, I want to promote that because so i was at drama bookshop and i saw your book the other day i bought Yay. your book so oh i have god, so i'm you. gonna start reading it and <laughs> i was like oh my god he's coming out the pod i have to buy the book and it felt like i was gonna buy it online but then i was like it's a sign it's here in the store let's go ahead and do it oh yeah i'm so proud of that by the way and the drama bookshop to like taking it on like that was that felt so good when they when they said yes and sent me the the form to fill out and whatnot so that's thank amazing. You. Thank you for buying it from them. <laughs> oh my gosh, of course. You talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but I would love for you to kind of go into more detail if, you know, whatever you're comfortable with sharing of, you know, your journey um, creating that book and and where you see, I know you mentioned something about TV and where you see, you know, it headed. Sure. So, um, yeah, the book, I didn't, I never set out to be a writer. I never set out to be an author. Mm -hmm. Um. I had always loved writing as a kid and um, you know, the, the reason for the book obviously is not a happy place. You know, I was, I was 25, 24, 25 and I was finally starting to get called in by like Tara Rubin or Bernie Telsey. And it was like, finally, like I've worked all these fucking regional gigs that were total trash and fine after like submitting and auditioning and being seen and taking classes and whatnot, I was finally getting calls from them out of nowhere Mm -hmm. Um, the one that hurts me the most, uh, I was in Reno doing Hairspray, which was kind of the origin story of the book. Um, and I got a call from Tara Rubin and they asked me to come in for Bob Gaudio for Jersey Boys. And I could not afford a flight back and they were not taking video submissions. Mm. And I would like, in hindsight, like that job out there just did not matter. And I should have just been like, uh, you know, figure it out. I'm going to go and make, make this happen. Um, anyway, so. I um, was doing that production of Hairspray and this tumor appeared under my arm and it kept growing and it eventually was the size of a grapefruit after like five months of performing in Reno and I had to come back here and had all these things that I was being called in for and booked and and whatnot over the last over the next year. Mm -hmm. And it all went away in an, in a second, you know, I was like a week or so after I got home, it was like Thanksgiving and then I was in the hospital on chemo one. And it sucked. It was a really, really big roller coaster, especially like as as my performing life got farther and farther away in the rear view. Um, it was it was very painful to kind of deal with, uh, you know, while you're sitting up in a hospital bed being hooked up to machines and drugs and shit. Yeah. And um, and so what ended and like just being acutely aware of what was happening me happening to me during that time, and of course like making mental notes, taking actual notes, the few photos that I did take uh, that were taken during that time. Years later, after I was cancer-free and all of that, I met someone who was more recently cancer-free. They were like three or four months out. And we had this conversation. I was like, how, how are you doing? And they were not okay. And we just kind of sat in my apartment and talked about it. And 
it was everything I felt and and thought over the last, I think at that point it was three years of being mm-hmm. out um, cancer free. And um, so I just was like, this is what I'm going to write about. I'm going to write about this. And I called a couple other people I knew who had cancer young and I asked them the same questions that I asked him. And every single one of them was like, yeah, that's, that's how I felt. And it very much became like, I, I have not heard a single person mention any of this. There are, I'm presuming there are no resources for this kind of aftercare um, or even the awareness of this. And so I set out to write this book um, to talk about the version of cancer that no one wants to talk about, yeah. which is like, first and foremost, like the nitty gritty stuff, like dating, sex, drugs, drinking, addiction, pers- um coping mechanisms and things that you don't think of when you hear a cancer patient. Like you don't hear a cancer patient and be like, I wonder if they're horny today. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like you're, st- you're still a person. You're not dead yet. So like, yeah. you know, all of these things still apply. And so um, it, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of like the hospital system and how messed up that was and how I very yeah. quickly became a Guinea pig instead of a patient. And you know, a, a not a huge load of other things. Um, but in the end, it was more so about the fact that after you're cancer-free, your life is a mess and there is no navigating it. There, like you, it, especially if you're not aware that it's happening because you think, I think most people assume that like, once you hear, oh, you're cancer-free, like, boom, you go back to the, the life you had before and everything's the same and normal again. And it really, really is not, and never is ever again. And, you know, in hindsight, that's such a great opportunity and such a good moment. It doesn't feel good in the in the present. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, trying to force yourself into friendships or careers or situations that prior to you would have been fine with. But now you're like, who, who the, why am I fucking hanging out with these people? God, look, they just make me mad. <laughs> it like, puts yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I told you that. So I'm six months out cancer free myself. Okay. And um, you know, it's one of those things I feel like you you hit the nail on the head talking about that, where it's like no one talks about how to get on after. No, no, no one talks they just, about they just chuck you out and they're like, get back to your life now. Good luck. <laughs> the depression that comes from it, the the constant fear of it coming back. I mean, I deal with that every oh single God. day. I have become hyper aware of my body in ways that are yes. probably way too problematic for myself, actually. It, it's it's crippling, really, for lack of a better word. You just are paralyzed. You can't do anything. I remember I would get cuts or bruises and be like, oh my God, it's not healing fast enough. I must have leukemia. Like, you know, yeah. and because also at the same time, I had other friends around me who had cancer at the same time, mm-hmm. um, some of which did not make it. And so then you see that and you're like, fuck, yep. I, ew, it doesn't feel good. It's like, I guess what you would call maybe survivor's guilt, but that playing into like the being a full hypochondriac of like every little thing. And especially six months. I mean, fuck, we're dealing with COVID now too. Yep. You know, like thankfully my quarantine and hospitalization and aftercare prepared me for that. Cause it was like masks and gloves. Great. I know how to do that. That's easy. Yeah. No problem. Um, but that's just a totally different layer that I'm sure you can speak better to than I ever could. Cause that's nuts. Well, I just remember like after mine, like I, the, whenever they told me it was officially cancer free, I went out and bought the Lego hocus pocus house from the Lego store. 
<laughs> and was like, I just, in, this was back in August. I was like, I just need something to get my mind off of this. We're going to go build a, like a fucking Lego set and I'm going to have a great night. I'm going to pour myself a glass of wine. It's going to be wonderful. Yeah. Go home I mean, and that's... I start doing Sorry, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I start doing it. And then halfway through, I just like started like compulsively crying in my living room. Yeah. And it all of that joy that was maybe there for like two, three hours, like was like gone. And it's, I was like, what is wrong coaster. with me? Nothing is wrong with you. It's a roller coaster. And like, it really is. You have good days. You have bad days, just like in regular life, except for your bad days are like you almost died. Um, you could at any moment, and like I don't know the specifics of your of your treatment or prognosis or whatnot, but like mine was a stem cell transplant. That was the final nail in the coffin for the cancer yeah. situation. And there was a possibility that at any moment that transplant could just reject. And then you are back to square one mm -hmm. and with no immune system to speak of. And so it's it's like it's really unfair to ask that of anyone. And unfortunately that, you know, illness and, and disease is just part of life, unfortunately, but it really is such a scary day to day. And I will tell you, it does get better. And I will tell you that the very, very, very similarly to what we were talking about before, where you have that singular focus kind of thing, mm -hmm. you have to do that now. Yeah. I and like I'm sure that this podcast is part of that equation. You know, like I had I had a tall men's magazine that I started when I was in the hospital after my boyfriend, who was six foot ten, broke up with me because I was like, How am I ever gonna meet a tall man ever again? I know <laughs> I'll start an online magazine that is just for them, and that's how I'll meet him. Um manifestation. <laughs> spoiler alert, still single. Um, but like <laughs> Um, That's you know, so and, and you, you create these things or you glom onto these things that are kind of therapeutic for yourself because like yeah. it, it's, it's needing to feel normal. It's wanting to feel like you are somehow the person that you were prior mm -hmm. and it, like, it's, it's good for the short term, but in the long term, you know, in hindsight, now that we're 11 years out versus six months, I can very definitively tell you that the decisions that you make about who you are and where you want to go right now are more important than any Lego set, than any podcast, than any person. <laughs> like you have such, oh my God. And this is like exactly what I would tell myself. Like you have such a great opportunity right now to really decide who you want to be yeah. and what direction you want yourself to go in. And yes, all of the mental health shit is going to play into that. And it's going to be good days and bad days. But if you just like have a singular focus of where you want to go and you only do that, and everything else is a distraction and realizing that other things that you want to do can play into that later and just being patient with it. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, the changes I would have made, you know, I, I so badly tried to shove myself back into the life that I had and didn't have the language or the understanding that like that life is dead. That person is gone. I am, that is, you yep. are not he, he is not you and dead RAP gone. Um, and I didn't have that understanding. I still thought that there were parts of me that from that previ previous me that still existed. And in hindsight, I can tell you they didn't. And I tried so hard. And I think, again, that want to create my own thing all the time and to be my own boss, I ignored that. And mm -hmm. instead, I tried to, you know, <laughs> like I was trying so hard to like... yeah 
do the audition hustle and and live a life that I was living before I started doing these like crazy self-sabotage things where I would be holding court at blockheads and we'd get shit faced for nine hours like twice a week um you know and that was fun and I needed that because of the social component I just wanted mm-hmm. to be around people so badly and also at the same time all of those people annoyed the shit out of me because it was like I almost died my life is in shambles I don't know what's going on and here you are yammering on about some shit that doesn't matter but I still knew that I loved them and I wanted them to be part of my life so it's it's this weird imbalance and dichotomy of like who you were versus who you are and I think that the, the sooner you can hack off the person you were before and just view them as like a dead person and move forward with this new person that you are now that is going to serve you so much better in the long run than if you try to like you know crawl your way through sand back to the person you were before um because it's it's just there's no point and yep. it's not it's not going to serve you in the long run like just just please make the decisions of the new person that you want to be now because that person will be so much better off then if you tr- spend, I don't know, uh, maybe five years is what I spent trying to be like, I need to be that person again. Yeah. I didn't. Thank you for that. That That's really great. I needed that. Because just sometimes like it's, I feel like I've, I, uh, not even just with this, but as we as humans, I feel like whenever something's uncomfortable, or we're put in a situation where we then have to like cope, we run back to what's familiar just because that's what's safe. Oh my that's God. What, of it's course. the safe option. And yes. so like you're saying, we run back to who we were because that's what we have known for however many years. Um, when it's, you know, we're, I mean, I say this all the time in a kind of unrelated note, but it's like, I am not the same person I was when I moved to New York because New York pushed has pushed me so far out of my comfort zone, out of just experiences through life and whatever. I'm not the person that I was two months ago, three months ago, whatever. So I feel like I'm constantly growing. And then thankfully, I guess, having the city be that growing force around me that has kind of pushed me out of my comfort zone in other ways, it's already made me accept that I can't go back. So it's been a little bit easier in terms of that, not feeling like I can retreat back because I know subconsciously if I'm not that same person anymore. Yeah. And there's also like the broader scale of that where like right now the changes that I made are don't matter. And I don't mm-hmm. know if I would make them because it got me to here with this book and the life exactly. the and everything else I'm doing. So like there is value in that too. Um, but you know, I think having having a, a stronger um footing and understanding of the definitive decision making that I should have been making could have been making instead of just kind of wafting around and wasting my time trying to be something I wasn't yeah. um, is really kind of the only change that I would make, I guess. Well, I'm very excited to read your book. Um, well, thank you. I, I can't wait to dive it. in. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I will. Um, so as we kind of go to wrap this up, I would love, so my, one of my favorite ways to end the episodes is to ask the guests that I have on for um, a piece of advice that you have received or uh, something that has impacted you that you would like to pass on to the listeners. I know advice is kind of hard, but you know that can be, it can be an experience. It's shifted how you you know think or live or whatever you would like to pass on to the listeners. Um, I'm I don't want to get all philosophical with with this advice situation. Um, if there's one thing I've learned in the last two years, it's that having a team, having people that you are paying to do something for you, will get you farther than anything that you singularly could do ever. Um, and again, this goes back to being corporate baddie by day. Um, 
like I I was able to afford to pay a publicist to help me promote my book, to help me get news placements, TV segments, Times Square billboard, podcast placements. And a lot of that I did on my own as well. But similarly to having an agent, you pay your agent 10%. So they do 10% of the work. You do 90%. Yeah. And that's the same with a publicist. You pay them either a percentage or a flat rate or whatever. And then you also, with them or separately from them, go get the things. And I definitely think that people are under the assumption that having a publicist is something that you only need when you are already famous or about to be famous. And I would combat that by saying, I am much more well-known now than before I had my publicist. And it is because of that. Um, I'm on the hunt for a new one and I'm excited for it. And I think it is an important tool that people in creative don't necessarily know how to get or understand the importance of, but do it (laughs) yeah that's a very good piece of advice i mean honestly i have always said as creatives we are our own ceos we we wear all the hats of the business we're the marketing director we're the you know whatever you want to say but it's important to also know that there's a time to expand that team because we can only reach so far before we need to ask for help to extend farther i mean we're doing that right now at the podcast we just hired an amazing web designer that's doing a complete rehaul of our website so like our website's taken down and we're we're changing everything up and um it was just one of those things i was like as we you know have grown and we've gotten guests that are you know amazing we keep growing the the fam for the bradshaw effect i want that to be reflected in how we look um, you know, on the interwebs and places. And so it's just important. You gotta, you gotta reach out. Well, Edward, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I loved our conversation and I know that we'll talk more offline and I can't wait to to talk more with you. Um, this, this was so, so great. I needed this and I hope everyone else got a little bit from this too. Same. Thank you for having me. Of course, everyone, I will link Edward's social media website in the show notes so you can give it a look. Um, I will also link the place to buy his book. Um, I think everyone should buy it and give it a read. I'm excited to dive into it. Maybe we can start like a Bradshaw Effect book club. That'd be fun. I don't know. Maybe. Well, and just like that, we are at the end of the episode. I cannot thank you all enough for listening. Edward, again, thank you. Thank you for coming on. I hope you all have a great morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you're listening to this, and I will see you all later. Bye. Bye.